everybody. This is Dave Tack. You're listening to Bits and Bricks. So last summer, I got the honor to go to Billund, Denmark, which is the home of the Lego Group. And while I was there, one afternoon, me and Brian and Ethan were the guys who bring you Bits and Bricks. We met a guy named Stuart Harris. I'm actually holding his business card in my hand, except Stuart Harris's business card isn't a business card. It's a minifigure. It's a little yellow guy, white shirt, black pants, black bowler hat. He's wearing a shirt that says Lego and Stuart Harris underneath. And on the back, there is a telephone number and an email address. It is the best business card I have ever seen. And it's kind of the only business card that a master builder could have. And in case you don't know, a master builder is, well, kind of exactly what it sounds like. A person who has officially mastered the art of building with Lego bricks. Now, Stuart works at the Lego House, which is basically this interactive museum dedicated to the Lego brick. It has dinosaur Lego builds the size of actual dinosaurs and like a waterfall built of Lego bricks that's a story and a half tall. It's amazing. And Stuart is sort of like the supervisor of those things. These amazing things that you kind of expect, honestly, at the home of the Lego brick, right? But you know what else they have at the Lego house? Right when you walk in in what they call the the town square area, they have builds from people who aren't master builders, builds from people who are civilians like you and me. That those exist in there at all is proof of how amazing builds have become, not just inside of the Lego group, but outside of the Lego group too. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's one of the one of the amazing things about Turner. Not only what the Lego group produces, but what the fan community produces. And I think uh, for me, it's the the quality and just the impressive nature of the of the fan builds that the really, uh, in one way, inspires me, in another way, intimidates me. <laughs> because you know what the fan um, community can build is just absolutely amazing, opening up even more possibilities. You know, because one of the, you know there's incredible facts about you know the 915 million combinations of six two by four bricks of the same color. You just add one more brick into that mix, and you think how many bricks we've got what the possibilities are is just uh, unlimited. I mean, it's true. Practically speaking, there is no limit to what you can make with Lego bricks. There's the prescriptive stuff. I bought a typewriter and I made a typewriter. But there's also a world full of outside-the-box creations. And that's what this episode of Bits and Bricks is all about. People who have built way outside the box. We're going to tell you three stories today, starting with the conversation between a young woman who is missing multiple limbs and a designer who created a Lego brick-compatible prosthetic. Then a conversation between an artist and a Black Panther writer. The artist creates these amazing, often Afrofuturistic sculptures using almost exclusively Black Lego elements. And finally the story behind a beehive made of Lego bricks uh, that I found on YouTube. Our first story is from our producer, Ethan Vincent, and it features an innovative designer, Carlos, and an amazing young woman, Tilly, and their shared passion for creative new kinds of prosthetics. Hi, everyone. It's Tilly, and welcome back to another video. 
Today I'm going to be answering the questions that I get asked pretty much on a daily basis. So to start off, let's address the elephant in the room. Where are my hands? Basically, it's a very long and eventful story, but I'll try to shorten it down as much as possible. I was rushed to the hospital when I was 15 months old with a disease called meningitis septicemia. It's basically like a blood poisoning in your body and not great. So I got rushed to the hospital with that and they basically said that I wasn't going to live. And if I did, I wouldn't be able to do anything like run, walk. But somehow I managed to pull through and prove them wrong. And I'm here today. But they did have to amputate my hands because the blood poison had just well and truly destroyed my hands. They were all black and they just had to go. So we had to get rid, but it's all right. I'm here. That was the voice of Tilly Lockie. She posted this YouTube video in March of 2019 as a 13-year-old from her own bedroom in Northern England. Tilly is 17 now, and since that video, she's become the ambassador for the Bionic Hero arm created by the medical device company Open Bionics. What if kids could create their own prosthetics? Forgetting the idea of the traditional concept of functionality, which is like it has to open, it has to close, it has to turn, all that stuff. Functionality can be a single brick that you hold in the air and you imagine that it's a spaceship. So that was the open question. The most challenging part was about people asking me, how are you going to pretend that a kid is going to build a prosthetic when you don't even know how to build a prosthetic? And this is Carlos Arturo Torres Tovar, a Colombian-born designer who currently works as a design director at a mobility startup in southeastern France in the beautiful town of Onancy. Prior to that, Carlos worked as a senior instructional designer for IDEO on a variety of projects, from community engagement strategies to prevent the spread of the Zika virus in Puerto Rico to helping innovate state-of-the-art robotic surgical tools. But it was during his studies at the Umea Institute of Design in Sweden that Carlos had the opportunity to work with the LEGO Group. And not just with any division within the company, but with LEGO Future Lab. So Future Lab, it's a super secret place. And basically, people there try to develop what the next thing would be in 10 to 15 years. It was an amazing experience. And there we were able to interact with kids on everyday basis, uh, test our prototypes and all that stuff. So for me, play before, uh, it was an everyday thing. It's like design for me is play. The thing that I do is play. So there I was able to really understand like really complex dynamics of play and understand the benefits of it. It's no surprise, but I don't think it's obvious for everyone to know that they have a huge knowledge of what play really means. And not only on an individual level, but especially at a social level. And basically being there exposed to that and connected to the reality of Colombia. Colombia had historically a very tough reality when it comes to kids and war and how people lose their limbs. It kind of occurred to me once that we were on a session with play with kids just to ask around why I never see a kid in disability playing with Lego bricks. For some people, it was kind of like, let's say, an innocent answer saying, uh, well, it, it's kind of obvious they don't have hands. But for me, it wasn't obvious because what I found on that is that the Lego system is such a, an amazing tool for kids to express themselves, especially in the early stage of being a kid when you can 
be really silly. There is no limit to your imagination, creation. And I felt that at some point, when I connected that to what was happening with uh, people in disability, you basically don't have options. And most of the kids have to grow up really, really quick. The opportunity of being a kid for someone in disability is really short. And I felt uh, very frustrated about that. Carlos channeled his frustration over poor prosthetic designs for children with disabilities into gathering ideas for his master's thesis project, which would eventually be called ICO, spelled I-K-O. He centered his design approach around the very question we heard at the beginning, what if children with disabilities could actually build their own prosthetic devices, ones that were centered on functionality and play with Lego bricks? As a designer, the first thing you need to do is, it's not sketch right away. The first thing you need to do is to listen and to understand. So for that, actually, I needed support. And that's when I look back in the days on my boss. Basically, I, I requested an interview with him. Uh, I asked him, what if kids could build their own prosthetics using Lego bricks? He was like, uh, okay, what do you need? I said, I need to go to Colombia. I need to find people, uh, families with disability to understand better disability, to understand prosthetics, and to travel from Colombia to Sweden, to Denmark, to other places. And he said like, okay, you got it. So from there, I went to Colombia. I had the big opportunity to interview and to select two cases. Through the Colombia-based organization CIRIC, Carlos was introduced to eight-year-old Dario, who was missing his right arm due to a congenital condition. Together, they tested the first prototype, and the process of trying on the fitted socket, twisting and clicking its LEGO Mindstorms-compatible modular muscle into place, and building a customized LEGO set onto it was documented in a video that Carlos' team created. And when you watch that video, you can see Dario's excitement culminate after he finishes building the Lego Technics backhoe set onto his prosthetic. He looks over to Carlos with a big grin as the backhoe's boom automatically extends the front bucket. I was just sharing this video with people and they were like, wait a second, is this really happening? It's like, yeah, it's pretty amazing. But it was way more interesting was that during the building experience for a kid, they were only not able to do it themselves, but the inclusion of the people around, it was even bigger than in a normal setup because either the families are really close to it or there is that, let's say, moment where, I don't know, their parents think that maybe he's not going to be able to do it. Oh, wait, he did it, but okay, tell me what do they do? And there was this really interesting dynamic on how the kid takes the lead and he is leading or she is leading the creation moment. And the result was beyond expected. Everyone felt this great feeling of the pride of creation that usually you get to experience when you build a Lego set, but this time was different. It was, we really built it together and it's something that represents an expression of someone. And that's what eventually led me to Tilly, who we heard from just a bit ago. We'll talk about how she is the ambassador for the Hero Arm, but I think it's important to hear her own personal journey with prosthetics. And that journey started at a very young age. So we didn't really know what to expect, but we went to the hospital and that was the day where I was going to be presented with my first ever prosthetic. We were in the waiting room and then when we got called in, 
I was actually given the prosthetic device in a brown paper bag, which just sounds like really suspicious. It sounds like that should not be seen, must be concealed and not what you'd expect a like literal medical device to be handed in. You know, it was really, really strange. And my parents, my mom was just really confused because they were like, what's the secrecy in it all? This is just a medical device that's going to help her at the end of the day. But everyone was so weird about it and we just couldn't really figure out why, but we were like, okay. So we took it anyway and we were walking away and there was a woman who was also sat in the waiting room of us and she just ran on over and she asked my mom, can I just ask you, like, what did they actually give her? And so we opened this brown paper bag and we showed her what we'd been given and she was just shocked taken aback and she was just like you know what that's exactly what they gave me 25 years ago and it just hadn't come on at all there's no way we would have known that but that insight from like an older woman who'd been through this all before she was blown away because she was like in 25 years and longer than that now and it's still available it's like nothing's changed in the design nothing's changed in how practical it is nothing changed in how it does things like what it does at all and literally nothing had changed and that was just really shocking to hear I never had an option in the beginning about design or anything like that it's kind of what you get is what you get and you don't really have an input and I mean you can look at that practically as it is but like also I feel like that's took a toll a lot on me growing up because I was like constantly under the impression that like this is just how it is and you get a hand and you get a hand to blend in and I feel like me when I was growing up that did instill a lot of sort of restrictions and limitations that I put on myself because you're being told this is how it is when you have a disability you're being told constantly this is what you won't be able to do. Tilly and her mom felt there was a strong need to be proactive and bridge the gap between what was being created and what was possible. From 3D printing to realistic-looking prosthetic arms, they finally came across more advanced, modern solutions with open bionics. I was curious what Tilly thought about Carlos' eco-project and his modular prosthetic devices that works with Lego elements for kids. So I brought the two together, and this is an excerpt from that conversation between Carlos and Tilly. So I've been looking up your website, Carlos, and yeah. all of that. It all looks super, super cool. First of all, really nice to meet you. You too. I was also checking your videos. It's pretty amazing. Also, the way you talk about prosthetics and everything is just... It reflects a lot the things that I was looking on the field. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. I just remember growing up and every single company you'd approach would all sort of offer the same thing, which was this really realistic design that was designed to like blend your differences and make you like look the same. And something I think is really cool about what we're both kind of doing is that, I mean, your prosthetics and the eco project they don't look like your everyday hand, but they're really, really fun. And it's bringing that light back for kids because it could be such a traumatic thing, you know, being born without a hand and growing up and facing all these challenges yeah. or losing it like I did. But what you're doing, which I really respect and what we're trying to do too, is sort of bring that like joy to it and show that you can actually reinvent that. That's awesome. I do have a couple of questions about the actual device. Yeah. Is it in the sense where you can like take it apart and then 
change it around for day-to-day activities, like different things that you can do with it? Or is it like you make your arm and then that's your arm type thing? That was actually the result of the research. I designed an option where you could have a sort of a hand actually, but this hand, it only has four fingers. And the idea of that is to make it more like, not entirely fun, but it's more like, for me, I had a huge contradiction of the prosthetics that basically forces kids to blend in. It's like the hyper-realistic one. Sometimes it can be even a worst solution when the kid wants to be a kid, especially the way people talk to you. For instance, one thing that I really admire about you and your work is that I think that you've managed, and also thanks to your family and yourself, to gain this amazing self-confidence that really it just makes you shine. Yeah. And then when you share your prosthetic, it's like you share it with such a pride that you don't need to have a realistic color, all that stuff. I was going through your material and it was really cool. It's so cool as well because you honestly, when you're the person with the disability or you're the amputee, you don't see it around at all. And, you know, it's such a minority. But I feel like since it is such a big minority, you sort of forget that there's other people in the world who are also dealing with these things, who you can also really help out. Like, it's really great for me because these arms that we make, the Hero Arm, is available in quite a few countries in Europe now. They're available in Australia, America, different things like that. And, like, there's kids in France who are saying, like, their favourite feature is the one that I put into the arm, and it really helps them. And that just lifts me up so much because it's like, that's why you do it. Nobody knows that insight or that perspective except for you and like the fact that I can speak for those people and give them something that's going to help them and really be involved. I'm super grateful to Open Bionics for like letting me have such a role in it as well and that's something that they really encourage like we have like a box at the lab where people can just like write what they want to see next in the arm and then they'll just pop it in and they'll go through them like once a week and I feel like it's really important. Yeah absolutely and it's really funny to hear the word box because Actually, that's how in design you usually, let's say, you go out of the box. Basically, the box is actually yourself. And the only way to get out of the box is just to, to listen outside, to actually ask people outside. And it was really nice to see how you've been approaching prosthetics as well, because it really reflected a lot of what I was finding when I was designing the prosthetic. So when I designed the project, just coming back to the question, yeah, it had this sort of functional hand, but I wanted it to look different because for me it was from the beginning trying to empower the kid to actually forget about the hand. It was more about thinking, what if you actually had the opportunity to not have a hand? What if you had the opportunity to create whatever you needed? Instead of creating a hand to hold a spoon, why don't you just create a spoon? That's definitely out of the box thinking. Yeah, so I was thinking like, why not bypassing that thing? If you want to have a, I don't know, like a spaceship, why do you need to build a hand to then build a spaceship when you can just have the spaceship or you? Yeah, I want a spaceship hand. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds so cool. Yeah. To be honest, I would love to know like, what are the future plans for you, Colos, and the ICO project? Like, what are you planning to do next? The ICO project, it was actually kind of, a, I would say, one of my favorite projects I've, I've ever done. I really tried for about three years or more in trying to make sense of it in terms of a financially business-oriented teams, development, and other things. 
eventually I tried to implement Bluetooth uh, capabilities where you were able to connect other devices and basically with your prosthetic also control other devices. I was able to prototype these things, but uh, in the end, it's really hard to, let's say, to run a, a social-oriented company when the impact is not immediate. That was the the most frustrating part. Uh, but since then, I've been trying to take every opportunity, like for instance, this one, to talk about it, which I think this is something that you understand pretty well, Lee, and it's like the work of sending a message. It's about the message, it's not about yourself. So for me, it's still very important for people and for companies to know and to advocate for whenever we're designing for kids, especially in disability, we need to talk to them. We need to understand what kids need. And especially we need to understand that kids need to be kids for as long as they can. It's like being able to be creative, being able to be social, being able to have fun, being able to be yourself, all this stuff. Because it's not about just the toy. It's not about just the, the system and how you build. It's actually about how kids use Lego bricks. So that really empowers the thing and, and really fascinates me. And yeah, who knows what's going to come next. But I'm really curious from your point of view, is uh, what do you think the future of prosthetics is going to be? Oh, see, this is such a fun question for me. What I feel like would be really, really cool would be to have settings that literally do the thing. And if I were to press the button like four times or something, it would just automatically start doing this thing. So what I'm thinking about there is like, if I wanted to like program in a song on piano and I just press that option and then the hands just start playing, then I can play a piano and I can be a pianist. Do you know what I mean? Like the possibilities are literally endless and I'm just super excited by it all. I could waffle about it all day and forever because it's just super exciting and it's like I really feel like in the next five years it's really just going to take off and we're all going to be shocked and I can't wait. (laughs) Tilly said that this conversation with Carlos reminded her of her own childhood, that at times felt lonely. And this modular prosthetic device that works with Lego elements that Carlos was working on Well, it gave her hope that other children with similar issues won't have to go through some of those same feelings. I really did have like an intense fear of rejection all the time when I was growing up. Like I genuinely had to give myself pep talks to introduce myself to some people when I started primary school and I wanted to like make friends. I used to sit on the bench by myself for so long because I was so scared of them just saying, no, we don't want you to play. And I don't know why or I didn't know why, but like looking back on it, there's an awful lot of things that have happened, which just made me think like that shouldn't have happened. Why? And it it made me feel like all these emotions came up. You know what, I'm just really, really happy that more people are getting involved and more people are seeing that. It was so great talking to Carlos and I love any opportunity like this because it's sharing your story and hearing somebody else's, you know, and that's the one thing I'll always say. I feel like everybody has something that they can teach you. And I feel like that's really, really valuable. And for him to have all these insights, you know, talking about how frustrating things can be for an amputee and him not even being an amputee, but acknowledging that, I think that's really, really great. And it shows a lot of like selflessness and it shows a lot of determination. 
actually just to make life better for everybody. I think we resonated quite a lot with each other in the work and what we're doing. It's all about giving, you know, young people and kids the wheel and giving them the decisiveness and the options to say what would genuinely help them and what they need. I feel like that's the most important thing. Like Carlos said, like a lot of companies still now today aren't really taking on and acknowledging. And, you know, it wasn't the case for me growing up. So honestly, the more we could talk about it and the more we can raise awareness and share that story and that insight, the better. Our next story encompasses gorgeous Lego art, a Black Panther writer, and the power of Afrofuturism. Producer Brian Crescenti tells us the story, which starts with an artist. Actually, one of my favorite works is The Great Turtle Race. This is a life-size sculpture of two children that are about the size of, I don't know, maybe six-year-olds. And they're riding on the back of two sea turtles, but the sea turtles are kind of mythologized. And then you have these children, one wearing a tiara and a flowing dress, and the other one wearing a cape with these long locks flowing behind them. And they're riding on these sea turtles and everything is all black. There is just something really powerful and really fun and enjoyable about an artwork like that. And it's also the first time that I gave the children I'm making animated expressions. So yeah, it's a really meaningful sculpture to me. And the fact that it's been given this exclusive position in the Lego compound. Like it's not accessible to, I'm sure, a lot of the employees because it's right outside the top main board office. But that's pretty cool that the people that are making these heavy decisions for this huge company that means so much to everyone around the world, if they're looking for inspiration before or after their meeting, they're walking up there and they're going to see this artwork. I like to think that it's going to have like a really positive effect on what Lego plans to do down the line. This is Echo Namako, a Ghanaian-Canadian internationally exhibiting artist describing his favorite creation. The Great Turtle Race stands about six and a half feet tall and 13 feet long. It's actually two sculptures that were designed to be displayed together. The lifelong multidisciplinary artist work has been shown in art centers, galleries, and museums around the world. Echo's commissioned creations are highly sought after and displayed in corporate and private art collections. In fact, NBA superstar Miles Turner has a seven-foot personalized Darth Vader piece at his home. And the Great Turtle Race was designed for the international headquarters of the Lego Group, where it's a natural fit for two reasons. First, because the massive art piece brings to life the essence of childhood, something intrinsic to the values of the company. But also, like all of Echo's creations, the Great Turtle Race is made entirely of Lego bricks. Echo studied fine arts at York University and uses that knowledge to create these evocative, dreamlike pieces of artwork entirely out of Lego bricks, often only black Lego bricks. It strikes me as a unique medium for professional artistic expression, but that's not how Echo sees it. I've used it since, I don't know, I was about three years old, four years old. I call it the most versatile medium in the world. It makes me more of a found object artist in many ways just because of the way I build and I use the material, I don't always know exactly how I'm going to achieve the forms that I create kind of intuitively and also do research into what kind of parts are available following blogs. Oh, this is a new slope that I could use to help me achieve what I need. So I'll order a bunch of those and they might just sit around 
for years or months before I find an opportunity to use that part. So it's really just this process of discovery and letting the material inform the art. There's three reasons that I give when I'm asked about using only black or mainly black. I like black. I wear a lot of black and I've always had an interest in black as a color or a shade. It encapsulates everything and at the same time can encapsulate nothing without losing its vastness. Another reason that I use it, and this is a more technical reason, is because I found that the Lego group produces almost every single type of part in black. Because when you look at the sets and everything else, black parts are often used as these connector pieces. So when I'm looking for parts or I have a particular part in mind that I'm already familiar with and I want to know if I can use it for a sculpture, then odds are they do make it in black. And the third reason I use black is when I'm making human figures or humanoid figures and I use that color in these parts, the ethnicity of the characters that I'm creating, these black children, there's no possibility for their ethnicity to be denied because when you're regarding the artworks and regarding these children that I've created, whether you're talking about their ethnicity or just the qualities of the sculpture itself, it's still going to be regarded as black. And that was really important to me. One other thing that helps define Echo's stunning work, it is often centered on Afrofuturistic themes, from his civilizations display at the Aga Khan Museum, which reimagines narratives of sub-Saharan Africa during the Middle Ages, to the Amorphia works that toured Toronto and London and featured West African mask-making with inspirations ranging from the terrestrial to the interstellar. So to understand Echo's vision, you have to first understand what Afrofuturism is. For me, it's a movement and a genre, and it's really just imaginings of the future that are centered on Black people and Black people's experiences. But a larger definition is that it also allows us to create liberated futures, which is why it's such a powerful tool for activism. And I find that I particularly walk the line of Afrofuturism and African futurism the latter being relatively the same, except that these experiences take place on the continent of Africa or focus on people in the continent of Africa, whereas Afrofuturism is more about the diasporic population and their exploration of like future imaginings. So I walk both lines, being a Ghanaian, but I wasn't raised on the continent. I was raised here in North America. So parts of what I do incorporate African futurism and some of the narratives I imagine take place there, whereas some of them also aren't so particularly rooted on the continent, just more so about the, the characters that I'm creating. The impact of his works are delivered by his vision and depiction. The medium of his expression, black Lego bricks and elements, land as a surprising third jolt. That's also what Evan Narcisse felt when he first came across Echo's art. But he also felt a deeper, more personal connection to the creations. Ever since I was a little kid, African folkloric art traditions have always fascinated me. Um, my parents are Haitian immigrants, and so I saw a lot of work that was made in the Caribbean trying to hold on to some of those West African kind of aesthetic traditions. And seeing Echo's artwork reminded me of all of that, right? But again, the fact that he's working in Lego bricks is kind of amazing because Lego bricks are not like wood. They don't move the same way. They don't respond to, you know, your artistic intent the same way, right? You've got to shape them in very specific ways and work within the pieces that are being made at any given time. It is, 
I'd say uh, this weird fusion of the past and the present and the future, right? Imagined futures. That's one of the big, I think, staples of how people execute Afrofuturism as an aesthetic, right? It's like, this isn't necessarily the future that can happen, but it's one that might have happened had history been different. And I think all of that comes through in Echo's work, and it's one of the reasons I find it so fascinating. Evan and I have known each other for probably decades, sort of working in the same circles back starting in the 2000s or so. But these days, Evan is more of a writer and a storyteller. He writes for TV, video games, animation, comic books. Among his work is time spent writing Black Panther, perhaps the most widely known piece of African futurism. Both men spend their days creating Afrofuturistic spaces out of their imagination, their culture, and their family histories. I'm Haitian-American, and I know firsthand what it's like to come from a cultural and ethnic group that has a bunch of stereotypes associated with it, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of history that doesn't have proper context, doesn't place the actions of, like, Black people at the center, right? I've watched the discourse around the Haitian Revolution change to where, like, France freed the slaves in Haiti to... Now, like, no, the Haitians freed themselves. That's the kind of, like, thinking that I just can't escape. And I'm not trying to escape into it. Rather, I'm trying to to run into that understanding, you know, and expand upon it in my own work. I got the chance to write Black Panther. And, like, my whole thesis for Rise of the Black Panther, the miniseries I wrote, was, like, hey, how do we reckon with what we inherit? How do you honor those that came before you? And how do you also create new space for different understandings of this thing that you love in the present and in the future, right? That's really what energizes me on all my creative works. Like, uh, I feel like I owe something to my ancestors, you know? They got me here. I believe they're very much still with me in a lot of ways. And I want to, you know, honor that work. And for people who might be new to the characters or universes that I get to participate in, I want to make them feel, especially on Black diasporan peoples, like they're welcome there. They are not just welcome, you know, not just sitting on the side, but they're in the center. The spotlight is on you. You are the one around the crux of the story and the drama and all the kind of aspirational ideals. And that's super important to me. Yeah, definitely. Evan, you're bang on in terms of the baton and just honoring those who came before you while creating new opportunities and creating new worlds that are still at the same time part of these existed worlds that have already been created. You know, I, I've always been so inspired by seeing and reading, you know, things like comics and film. I'm a huge fan of movies. It's interesting. People ask me about Black Panther all the time because they see the parallels between the worlds I'm creating, usually with my Building Black Civilizations body of work. I consider all of these things really, really important and always kind of think about, well, let's say if we're talking about Black Panther, for example, and I was mentioning like the parallels between my work and that realm, I recognize their value and importance, or at least I even place my own sense of like value and importance on it so high because I recognize the importance of just seeing a film that has this kind of a budget and that has a team behind it that is being as authentic as possible to the Black experience in creating a film like this or the, you know, both of these films. So yeah, when it comes to the movies and their influence on me, you know, I'm looking at it as this is just important. Seeing these kingdoms and seeing these things illustrated in this way and seeing these characters that 
are fleshed out in this authentic way, it's hard to not think about, you know, these vast African kingdoms that you, or futuristic kingdoms that you just saw in these movies. And then you're looking at my work, it's hard to separate the two. And if I was really young, I would be super excited to see both as well. Like, wow, I just saw this Black Panther movie. And then there's this Lego artist who's making things that look like or make me feel like it's related to Wakanda, which is just amazing. So Echo, one of the things I love about your work is how it binds together humility and glory. And I'll explain that a little bit. Like the Lego brick is a very humble thing, right? How many comedians have jokes about stepping on them after they have kids, right? It's so ubiquitous that like you can take for granted what is possible with it. But then, you know, you get an artist like you or Nathan Sawaya and you guys turn these humble little plastic bricks into explorations of your own identity, mortality, fragility. You invoke this history that you're talking about, this lost, forgotten, submerged history of African cultures on the continent. And you turn these bricks into something glorious. And I feel like that's really important because oftentimes when we think about artists and fine art and gallery exhibitions and whatnot, it feels like so out of reach, right? Like, I can't do that. You know, I can't paint a brushstroke like that. I can't imagine that. But like, the fact that you're doing this amazing work with, again, the humble Lego brick is amazing to me. The impact both Echo and Evan have on those who view their creations is deeply meaningful, both to the two artists, but also to communities that haven't always seen themselves represented in works of art and expression. That's something Evan was recently reminded of following a public talk he gave. Somebody in the audience approaches me and she's like, do you know where I'm from? And I'm like, I can hear that accent a mile away. Yes, you're Haitian, like me, right? And um, she's like, that's right. I, I told my son that um, you were coming to talk today. And she was like, you know who he is? And I'm like, yeah, he's Haitian like us. And, you know, when you come from a background like mine, people really misunderstand the tiny island nation where my parents were born as a place that's always been poor, that is pretty hopeless. Unless you're from that place or really empathetic to people who are, you don't know, like, the cultural achievements, the deep historical connections back to our African past that still persist in Haiti and how fiercely we hold on to that pride of connection, of revolution. So when somebody tells me that their kid knows who I am and it matters because we come from the same place, you can't prepare for that. You know, it's just really incredibly moving. Then you go to see Wakanda forever and you see parts of that legacy recognized and thrown up on a big screen to be like in proximity to somebody like Echo or other people who are like helping just build a different understanding of like, what can it mean to be black in the world and to invite other people in? Like, that's just a huge blessing. So that's kind of how it feels to be like doing creative work and trying to center black people in that creative work, like for me anyway. And then to have that recognized is really humbling. And it's a thing that keeps you going to be honest. Uh, yeah, and I, I have to mirror his sentiments completely. It's a great experience when young people just respond to your work in a way, and I, I see myself actually reflected in them and makes the experience that much more impactful. You know, there's even a small tinge of like, I don't want to say jealousy, but it kind of almost feels like that just slightly because like, I wish I was young and had, you know, Evan I was reading stuff like that written by Evan or seeing the sculptures that I built. I wish that 
that was there for me growing up. You know, it's it's weird to wish for something that is already long past in your life, but that's where part of at least a small part of that appreciation comes from. Because just seeing it and being like, it's so great that you get to see this, that you get to have this kind of influence. Echo's influence reaches beyond his words, beyond even his sweeping, breathtaking Lego brick sculptures, thanks to his Building Beyond work with the Lego Group. In these series of workshops, Echo works with children to help spark their imagination and get them using Lego bricks to create Afrofuturistic masks meant to tell the stories of their descendants. And these workshops have become so popular that Echo has actually made these kits available now on his personal website. It was just taking my my love of uh, African masks and masquerade in general and giving it an Afrofuturistic slant and giving it a simplified design with instructions so it can be built by pretty much anyone and this tabletop uh, physical emoji of sorts that is a, a brown skin character that is representative of your own descendants down the line. It helps to, I think, for people of all ethnicities that would engage in this kind of Lego play that or does present different ethnicities. Just, it's, it's a great feeling and I, I see the reaction for so many different kids and especially it makes me happy when seeing the, the real, the kids that are actual like super Lego fans and the questions they come at me with because they have very technical questions about how I achieve what I do. And I was just at this talk recently actually for an organization for marginalized students in the, one of like the Catholic school board here in Ontario. And there was a kid in the class, I'm pretty sure he's uh, from a Filipino family, and he just had these like really detailed questions about how I achieve the things I do with the material. And when, when talking to him, I made sure to like really encourage him, like the kind of questions you're asking, you know, you could be the person that comes up and like creates work that rivals or puts mine to shame down the line in the future, right? You just come up with some crazy stuff and that's amazing. Like, I, I want to see that. I want to see kids of different ethnicities finding the beauty within their own cultures and finding a way to use Lego to really take that to the next level. Today's final story is about an urban beekeeper. He's from California, and he quite literally and quite metaphorically built outside the box. We are now moving bees into the Lego hive. So the first voice you hear is Paul Hakimian. He's standing behind the camera, and his excitement is palpable. There's also a guy named Ian who's dressed kind of like Marty McFly in Back to the Future, and he pulls what looks like a, a, like a widescreen wooden picture frame out of a white wooden box, except where the picture would be, there's a civilization in miniature. There's hundreds of little black and yellow striped bees scurrying around on a couple of honeycombs, seemingly indifferent to the events unfolding around them. And then Ian turns the frame toward the camera. There's the queen. There right she there. is. Yep, I see her. There she is. Yep, I got and her. The camera flies toward the bees, and even to someone like me who knows about as little about bees as is possible, the queen stands out. She's like bigger. She's paler. She might even be faster. So then Paul pulls the camera back, and there it is. The reason for the video, a beehive made up of what must be thousands of Lego bricks. I love it. So when I was a kid, I had plenty of Lego bricks, but I genuinely can't remember ever building anything from the sets that I had. I just kind of made, like, whatever I felt like. 
or mostly my specialty was walls and red and blue and white and yellow, like whatever bricks I had at hand. So I added a window or two when I was feeling creative, which actually is something that Paul would wind up doing too. But anyway, looking at Paul's beehive, I can't help but think of my childhood specialty taken way beyond what I'd ever thought of. And then I was wondering, why would somebody make a beehive out of Lego bricks? Actually, why would someone make their own beehive at all? So to find out, I contacted that excited first voice. Yeah, my name's Paul Hakimian. I'm an urban beekeeper living here in uh, Santa Monica, California. And I also run a nonprofit called HoneyLove.org. We're a beekeeping nonprofit that saves the bees. That's what we do. And because you could fill libraries with the things that I don't know about bees, let alone beehives, I sought out an expert who I found in my metaphorical backyard. My name is Reed Johnson, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Entomology at The Ohio State University, and I teach and do research on honeybees. And then I introduced them. Their enthusiasm was every bit as contagious as Paul's YouTube video. The conversation that the three of us had taught me a lot about bees and answered every question I had before I got to ask most of them, starting with, you know, how do you build a beehive out of Lego bricks? Paul's story begins where I found Paul on YouTube. Yeah, I'd love to tell the story. I, like you, was on the internet, and I came across another video of this other person in Israel that had created a beehive. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I have to do the exact same thing. Paul's talking about what may be the world's first beehive made of Lego bricks, which garnered a lot of buzz in 2019 for a honey farm in Israel. So he was inspired by that, and his next step was finding hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of Lego bricks. So it took me about, I would say, six to eight months to even find enough to actually do it. And then I was so impressed by this gentleman in Israel that I slowly started doing it. I got my frames for my hives. I got all the dimensions of a Langstroth hive. It's a type of hive. And I just started building it. And then I was thinking to myself, okay, let me just model it after a real hive. And I wanted to make it functional. And so I did all the measurements and I started building it. And it took quite a long time to actually get it to its, you know, finished product. And I didn't do them like in a orderly manner. Like they're all different colors, but pretty much all the same shape. I had to stay consistent with a few different pieces. I only used little six blocks, four blocks, and I had to make little rails on the top so that the frames can get inside the hive. I mean, it's it's great. This is Reed again. Beekeepers are the most creative bunch, and there's so many different hive designs people have tried over the years. And I think this is a nice evolution of the, you know, beekeeper creativity in keeping bees. Okay, if I said let's picture a beehive, I bet we'd mostly see something similar, sort of like a stretched ball wide in the middle, skinnier on the top and bottom, maybe dangling from a branch, right? That's the kind of thing you'd see drawn in a children's book. And you'd be right, but I'll bet at least some of you pictured something else entirely, something more like a wooden box. And you'd be right too. That's called a Langstroth hive. Paul mentioned that earlier. And it's the key to understanding a beehive made of Lego bricks. And really, I think, beekeepers generally. Here's Reed to explain. The standard Langstroth hive that most beekeepers use is essentially a wooden box and you put these frames inside of that box, and the frames are sized so that they don't fit too closely, so they have this 3 eighths of an inch or B space all the way around the edges and underneath. 
And those frames actually rest on a little shoulder or a frame rest that's cut inside the box so that the frame doesn't go all the way to the bottom of the box. It rests on this little ledge. And you put anywhere from six to 10 frames into a box, depending on the size of the box that you're working with. And then this box rests on top of a bottom board, which serves as the base for the colony or the hive, as well as provides an entrance for the bees to come in and out of that box. And then on top of the box, you have a lid of some kind, and there's a number of different styles of lids that people use, but the, the purpose of the lid is really to keep the, the rain out and to provide protection for those bees that are living in the box. And so those are the basic components. I guess inside the frame, so usually you would use wooden frames, beekeepers provide a, a foundation, it's called, inside those frames, which is kind of a wax or plastic template. So the bees are actually involved in building a hive as well because you give them the basic structure and the foundation and then they produce the wax to build their home. The thing that sets a Langstroth hive apart is bee space, as in B-E-E space. Reed just mentioned it. And you know what bee space makes the professor from Ohio State think about? The humble Lego brick. Bee space is like the key observation that helped Lorenzo Langstroth develop the modern movable frame hive. And he held a patent on this. He got it in 1852. And his key innovation was that everything has to be a part bee space within the colony. So the bees can move between the frames, they can move under the frames, they can move over the top bars on top of the frames. And in his patent, he had everything about three-eighths of an inch apart so that it would respect this bee space. If things in a colony are less than bee space, then the bees will gum it up with this propolis glue that they collect from tree buds. And if it's larger than that space, they will fill it with wax comb. So to maintain a movable bee hive, you know, where you can pull out the frames, everything has to be bee space apart, which is one bee, one bee's distance, or about three-eighths of an inch. And I was just struck because all the Lego bricks are approximately eight millimeters is what I looked up, which is about three-eighths of an inch. Yeah, it actually did work out, uh, as you're saying, three-eighths. I think you're about right. It was almost perfect because the bees would go right underneath the frame and right on top. When I put the lid on, they had just enough space. So I, I didn't even know that. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. How heavy was the box? I mean— was it heavier than a regular wooden box? I'd imagine. Yeah, it is. And you got to be, you know, very careful with it because on the side, I made an apiary on the side of the actual hive. So you have this bee yard with all the bees and I put bees all over the side of it. And then on the other side, I put like a little farm with little animals and with flowers and it looks really cool. It was just fun. Everyone sees it. They're like, what? <laughs> But beekeepers manage the growth of the hive. That's all we are. We're stewards of their growth. As long as we can manage the growth, because the queen lays about 1,500 eggs a day, all we have to do is make sure they don't get too crowded in their hive, and then we keep adding a new box and a new box. And you can go five, six, seven high of adding boxes. Those colonies can be 70,000, 80,000, 150,000 bees in one box. It's amazing. So there's Paul with his beehive made of Lego bricks. Or really, anybody with a beehive now that I think about it? What's next? The answer begins and ends with bees, which are wildly fascinating. 
and actually way smarter than I ever thought. Bees are amazing. They're guards, they're nurses, they're architects, they're engineers. They're amazing little creatures that can do so much once you start learning about bees. You know, uh, why are bees important? Uh, Because they pollinate one in three pieces of fruits and vegetables that we eat. That's pretty much it. I mean, they're in the flowers to collect the nectar, which is, you know, this sweet liquid that the flowers produce as a reward for pollinators to come visit. And in collecting that, they get covered over with this pollen, uh, which is this little dust that the plants need to move from flower to flower in order for pollination to occur. And so they're covered with pollen. And as they're going from flower to flower, they drop a little bit of that pollen off at the next flower and pollination occurs. You know, it's hard to believe that these guys can communicate. There's this thing called the waggle dance. They literally give off coordinates on distance and direction. It's amazing that they can all communicate as a whole. The way they do that is they waggle their tails and they spin in circles. And the amount of circles and the amount of shakes that they're doing tells them the distance that they need to fly to find that new home. And they do the same thing when the pollinators come in with the pollen. They're also telling the rest of the bees in the hive where to go find that batch of pollen out there so they can, you know, continue feeding their bees. It's amazing what they can do. So how'd it go, that uh, beehive made of Lego bricks? I'll let Paul take over. The first time I did it, I think with the plastic, it wasn't breathing well. And so what I did is I put in little side doors or windows on the side. So I had to deconstruct it a little bit halfway down. I added some windows and some air vents in the front and on the sides. And then after I did that, then it worked out uh, really well. And then I layered it with some like birch wood on the really thin wood on the inside with some cork around the top so that, you know, the lid fit properly on top. But yeah, it worked really well after that. The only thing is, I only do it for short periods of time because it's only in one deep. At the end of the day, I'm more of a, I would say, a foster parent of bees. I usually rescue bees. I foster them for a certain amount of time, and then I find them new homes. So why build a beehive out of Lego bricks? Well, because everything about it is kind of awesome. From the bees to the bricks. Actually, Paul's Lego brick beehive is currently empty, although he still likes to show it off and uh, all the kids love it. I've been taking it like on National Honeybee Day. Uh, We had an outreach project, you know, like exhibition type thing that we did. And I took it with me and we took it down there and all the kids love it. It's always amazing to see who gets into beekeeping. I mean, it's just like a cross section of society, people from all different backgrounds really It's like you're born with this interest in beekeeping, and some of us have it, and it's just amazing to see who gets into it. The more we talk, the more I realize that Lego bricks and beehives aren't just a good fit for the obvious, you know, construction. They're also fantastic starting points, powerful tools for education about, well, way more than you'd think, or at least that I thought. Certainly, way more than I thought at first. Beekeeping is fascinating. I love sharing knowledge. So if anyone out there that's listening would love to learn about bees, I recommend them to you know look up their local beekeeper association. And beekeeping is simple. It's like, as they say, time in the saddle. Beekeepers, if you know, they love sharing information. So just volunteer. Take the time to learn about bees and find that local beekeeper. And buy local. Buy local honey. It's really good for you to find local honey, too, because they're pollinating on things that you're allergic to, right? You know, the the pollen that you're allergic to. 
it's harder to be a B today than it was, you know, 50 years ago, just because of all the challenges they're facing. And it's not called necessarily colony collapse disorder, but there's some real challenges to keeping healthy bees. But I think beekeepers can certainly be successful, but you have to be aware of, of some of the issues and you have to be willing to, you know, treat them if they're sick and to help encourage flowers in your environment or move them into an environment where there are flowers to get them to be maximally healthy and productive for you. I'm always asked, you know, what can I do, right? What can I do as a non-beekeeper? And there's a few things. You can don't use pesticides. Obviously, it's a no-brainer. You know, that's probably number one. Don't use pesticides in your yard. Two, you know, leave some water out for bees. Bees need water. Um, leave a water source out for the bees. And three, plant bee-friendly plants in your garden. Those are like three easy things that you can do as a non-beekeeper to help protect the bees. Because in the local environment, they they are thriving. I mean, what we see here in Los Angeles is amazing. I think we're kind of lucky to see so many hives and bees everywhere. They're thriving because of the, you know, less pesticides in the urban environment. There's less. So they are thriving locally. I didn't begin with the fascination about bees, but I caught the bee bug because Paul and Reed's enthusiasm was contagious. I'm actually a little bummed out that I can't watch the bees fly here in a northeastern Ohio winter for at least a few months. And none of this would have happened if it wasn't for a massive assembly of the little Lego bricks, just like the ones I'd used to create little walls in my childhood playroom. That's how it goes with Lego bricks. They do a little pollination of their own, and interest inevitably blossoms into so much more. Today's program was written by me and Brian Crescenti and Ethan Vincent. Our editorial and content director is Alex Ayling. Lead producer is Kirsty McNamara, who also oversees content and editorial. Carol Yanyan is production manager, artwork by Manuel Lindinger and Andreas Holtzinger, music by Peter Primer and founder music, mixing and sound engineering by Dan Carlisle. Our email is bitsandbricks at lego.com. That's bits, the letter N, and bricks at lego.com. I'm Dave Tack. Thanks for listening, and check back soon for more episodes of Bits and Bricks.